Our scripture reading this morning is from the book of 3 John, small little book, third from the last in the Bible. 3 John, the elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. Beloved, I pray that all may go well with you and that you may be in good health as it goes well with your soul. For I rejoiced greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth, as indeed you are walking in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Beloved, it is a faithful thing you do in all your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are, who testified to your love before the church. You will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God. For they have gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support people like these, that we may be fellow workers for the truth. I have written something to the church, but Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. So if I come, I will bring up what he is doing, talking wicked nonsense against us. And not content with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers and also stops those who want to, and puts them out of the church. Beloved, do not imitate evil, but imitate good. Whoever does good is from God. Whoever does evil has not seen God. Demetrius has received a good testimony from everyone, and from the truth itself. We also add our testimony, and you know that our testimony is true. I had much to write to you, but I would rather not write with pen and ink. I hope to see you soon, and we will talk face to face. Peace to you. The friends greet you. Greet the friends, every one of them. Before I pray, I want to bring a book to your attention that Asa Vik brought to my attention. It's called The Heavens Proclaim His Glory. And it is just a wonderful book made up of pictures from the Hubble Telescope and then quotes and things trying to help us see the glory of God inside of it. And I really hope that you pick up this book or something like it because the heavens do declare the glory of God. The skies do proclaim the work of His hands. He, many have said through the years, has written two books, the Bible and creation, and we ought to study both things. And so Asa let me look this book over for the last week or so, and I just found it so uplifting to my soul. So if you don't want to buy this book, though, go to hubblesite.org or whatever it is and check out what God has done. It's really amazing. God has exercised his power in the lives of some people in this church recently. And so let's bow together now and give him thanks for what he's done. Father, you are the one who stretched out the heavens. You are the one who calls them all by name. You are the God above all gods whose power is beyond imagining, whose wisdom is inconceivable, whose mercy is great. And I thank you so much that you took of your power and of your mercy and blessed Kate and Jeremy Wenzel recently, Father. First of all, in the birth of Isaiah, that child has already lived through two things that could have taken his life. And I praise you, O God, for stretching out your hand and saving Isaiah Wenzel. We love you for him and pray that he would become a great man of God someday. Father, I want to thank you specifically for healing Kate's body as well. A few weeks ago, you know, Lord, we were called over to her house. She was suffering terribly with a a bad rash. The doctors could not solve it. They didn't know what it was. No medicine was working. She couldn't sleep for days on end. She was suffering, Father. And so you called Kevin and myself and Kim and Alex to go and lay hands on her and pray for her. And we sensed that you had heard our prayers, and you did, Lord. That was the turning point. No medicines were working. No doctors knew what to do. But you healed Kate Wenzel, Father. You took the disease away from her body. And I want to thank you, God. We prayed. We called out to the Lord, and you answered. And now we want to give glory to your name and to your name alone. You are a great God and a gracious God. And, oh God, just last Sunday afternoon, we bowed in prayer over Steve Rukert and laid our hands on his leg that was hurting. Father, his knee was so stiff he couldn't hardly even bend it. And within a few hours of laying hands on and giving thanks to you and glory to you and praying for healing for him, God, his knee healed right up. It loosened right up, and it was working just fine. And I want to give glory to your name for that, Father. Lord, sometimes you sustain us in suffering. You, in your wisdom, don't remove suffering from us. And we thank you for that because it teaches us to live by faith. 
It teaches us that there are greater things in life than physical health, namely faith in Jesus Christ, love for Jesus Christ, a passion for Jesus Christ that remains no matter what the circumstances are. And so I thank you when you sustain us in suffering, Father, but I also want to give you thanks for those moments when you display your power, not only in the universe, but right in our midst, and show that you are with us by healing our bodies. So thank you, Father, for your work in the lives of these two people that we love so much. Thank you for showing us as a people that you are with us. Oh God, we could go through anything if we just know that you are with us. And I do believe you've given us these signs as ways of saying, I am with you in Jesus Christ. Thank you, Father. Please continue displaying your power among us, I pray, for the glory of your name and the joy of our souls. And now I pray that you would help me as I turn to the Word and seek to preach it as well as I can, as accurately as I can. Father, please give me wisdom. Please give me power. Please give me humility. Please let the Spirit of God flow in this place. Spirit of the living God, indeed, fall afresh on us now, I pray. Give us insight. Give us discipline. Give us encouragement. Give us all the things that we need through Your Word. I trust in You and in You alone now. In Jesus' great name we pray. Amen. Well, before we look at Third John today, I want to take a few moments and clarify something from last week that I know was confusing to some people because I got so much feedback about it. So I know it's way on the other side of your Bible, but turn to Second John. I think it's probably just right next to you on the same page. And I want to say a few more words about verses 10 and 11. John has just been warning his readers to look out for themselves because some false teachers had gone into the world and they were seeking to to deceive people away from Jesus Christ and toward lies. And so he told them in some very, very clear language that the one who does not remain faithful to the teaching about Jesus Christ does not know God, does not have God, has nothing to do with God. And the one who clings to the true teaching about Jesus Christ over time indeed has God, knows God, is in fellowship with God. And so the important point that we just must see is that there is an absolute connection to clinging to true teaching about Christ and to clinging to Christ Himself. He is the one who revealed the truth about Himself, right? And so to cling to the truth about Him is to cling to Him who told us the truth. So this is the massively important point that we must see that John is making here. What we believe about Christ and teach about Christ really, really matters. A big, big time. So with that, in verses 10 and 11, he says this, If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting, for whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. Now, based on John's words, I said last week that we may not, that we indeed cannot have fellowship with those who are seeking to deceive about Jesus Christ in the name of Jesus Christ. And I know that my words confuse some of you because I heard more feedback about that than I've heard probably in months and months about any sermon that I've given. And so I just want to take a few moments and try to make myself as clear as I possibly can. First of all, John is not talking about run-of-the-mill everyday unbelievers here. Who he's talking about here are false teachers who were deliberately trying to deceive people about Jesus Christ in the name of Jesus Christ. These were people who had been in the church who had once supposedly clung to true teaching about Jesus, but had now strayed away from that and were seeking to split the church, essentially. They had essentially gone off, started another church, and now they're trying to draw people away to their teaching, and their teaching was absolutely false. John is saying that we may not have fellowship with such as these. We cannot have fellowship with such as these, because when we have fellowship with them, we take part in their wicked works. Now, someone asked me last week if that meant we couldn't practice friendship evangelism, which is to say the art of, of cultivating a friendship in the hope that you'll share Christ along the way. And I hope that all of us are doing that. Indeed, we can do that. John is not forbidding us to have fellowship with everyday unbelievers. He's forbidding us to have fellowship with teachers who are deliberately trying to deceive us away from Christ in the name of Jesus Christ. He's not even talking about Hindus and Buddhists and Muslims. He's talking about Christians who are using the name of Jesus to deceive us about Jesus. We may not have fellowship with them because they are workers for the devil. They may be sincere in their hearts. They may be sincerely deceived. 
They may not think that they're drawing you away from Christ, but in truth they are. They're workers of Satan and we cannot have fellowship with them at all. So that's the first thing I wanted to try to clarify. We're talking about false teachers here. We're not just talking about everyday lost people. Second thing, I want to talk a little bit about why John would say, don't even have them into your homes. I had a question or two about that. Well, does that mean we can't have anybody who's lost in our homes? And I want to clarify a little bit about, I think, what's going on with John. In their world, when you had someone into your home, you were signifying to the world that you had utter fellowship with them, that you were in agreement with their philosophies of life and the things that they believed. To have dinner with somebody in their world was to say, I am one with that person. Generally speaking, in agreement with their way of life, with what they think, with what they're doing. In our world, we can have enemies into our house and no one would think the better of it. They might wonder why that person's at our house, but it would not communicate automatically that we're having total fellowship with that person. But in John's world, to have dinner with someone, and especially to have them into your home, was to signify that you were in agreement with their way of life. This is why Jesus was always getting into trouble with the Pharisees. You remember when He was with tax collectors and sinners, as they called them. What would the Pharisees do? They would always grumble against Him, right? What are you doing with tax collectors? Why are you hanging out with sinners? Well, you see, their beef was that they thought Jesus was was okaying, endorsing their way of life. That's what their beef was. And he must have thought that it was a valid concern because every time they brought the question up to him, he actually took the time to answer their question. Whenever they tried to just trap him in his words, he never answered their questions. But whoever asked a sincere question of Jesus, he always answered their questions. And every time the Pharisees questioned him about having fellowship with sinners, he took the time to ask, answer the question, sometimes at length. Luke 15 is a chapter-long answer to this very question. Why? How could you possibly have fellowship with sinners and tax collectors? And so it was a big deal in their culture. Jesus was not trying to signify that he was one with their way of life. He was saying what? I had to come to seek and save the lost, right? He said, I didn't come for the healthy. I came for the lost. And there's only one way to do that. I have to go to where they are. That's a different issue than John is bringing up before us. To to risk looking like we have fellowship with sinners because we go there to preach the gospel to them, that's a risk we have to take. Jesus sent us to Elk River, not just to be here, but to be a light in the midst of a dark world. And I've been praying every day of my life that Glory of Christ Fellowship would be that light more and more, that we would have passion for going after the lost, reaching the lost, sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. I pray that that would be true of us. We have to do that. But it's quite another thing to have fellowship with people who are deliberately deceiving about Jesus Christ in the name of Jesus Christ. Those people we cannot have fellowship with. Those we cannot bring into our homes. Those we cannot go after. We can love them. We can pray for them. We can seek to persuade them. All of that, yes. And we should. I don't want anybody to go to hell. I told you last week, the Mormon church down there on 39, the new one, every time I go past it, and I ride my bike past it all the time, I pray two things. God, stop them and save them. Stop the lies, but save their souls. Oppose their deceit, but bring them to Christ. And I pray that. I pray that the leadership in that church would come to Christ. And I hope to the, to the day I die that I will pray that way for them. But I will never have fellowship with them. This may sound harsh to you, but I would not serve a hot dog to a homeless person with a Mormon church because it would signify that I would have fellowship with them. And I cannot do that. They are deceivers. And there is just no way in the world that we can send the signal in the physical world or the spiritual world that we have any kind of fellowship with them at all. So let me just give you an example of what this might look like. Let's say on the one hand, you have a friend in a a Mormon church who is just a run-of-the-mill, everyday member of a Mormon church. Not a leader, not particularly seeking to push Mormonism, just an everyday Mormon. In my view, you are free to bring that person into your home, invite that person to a Bible study, do anything you can to persuade them toward Christ. You are free with that. But let's say on the other hand that you know a leader of a Mormon church who is intentionally trying to deceive people about Christ in the name of Jesus Christ. I think that John is telling us we are not free to have that person inside of our homes. 
We are not free to greet that person. We are not free to give any signals whatsoever that we are in agreement with those who are seeking to deceive about Christ in the name of Jesus Christ. Strong separation between the leaders of the Mormon church and everyday people in the Mormon church, I, I believe. In my experience over the years, they're almost completely different worlds. Let me talk a little bit about that to you now. Generally speaking, the leaders of the Mormon church are well aware of their teachings and they know exactly what they're doing. They know that they are deceiving about Christ in the name of Christ. They're not unaware of these things. Several years ago, Kim and I, just to, just to do due diligence and really do our research and make sure we understood Mormonism well, we went to Salt Lake City and we spent four hours at the main temple there. About two of it, we were just walking around the grounds. They have museums and different things and we're just trying to understand Mormonism. And about two hours of it, we sat and talked with an elder, one of the main leaders there at the main temple. And for two hours, we grilled him about all kinds of stuff. One thing I didn't mention to you last week is that they teach that Jesus, after he was done in Jerusalem, went over to South America for a while and won some people to himself there and that that people uh, prospered there in South America for a thousand years and all this stuff. It's all lies. And the way I know it's lies is because if you go to South America and look for where those people were, guess what? There's not a cup. There's not a plate. There's not a house. There's nothing. If, if, you were to, if we were to evacuate Elk River right now, there would be a little bit of evidence that some people had been here for a few years, right? Well, they claim that a people had been in South America for a thousand years and there's no evidence that any of those people were there. So they teach all kinds of things like that. We were just trying to confirm this with this elder and one by one by one he was saying, yep, that's what we teach, yep, that's what we teach, that, that's what we teach. We were... We were confronting him with the Bible. Kim is, uh, has been educated in Spanish and South American history, so she knew a lot about South American history. We're confronting him with all of that. And at some point, he just knew that there was no way he was going to persuade us, and so he just left off with that and started saying, well, why don't you just read the Book of Mormon? What could it hurt? He didn't care about the evidence. All he wanted to do was persuade us to be a Mormon. And I have found that the leadership of the church, generally speaking, is just like that. We may not have fellowship with people like that. They are deceivers. Now, as far as the run-of-the-mill, everyday, rank-and-file members of the Mormon church, I must say that I have found they're often not even aware of what their own church teaches. Probably the most stark example of this was a woman named Mary in our lives who came to visit our church in California. And we found out she was a, a, a member of a Mormon church and she was visiting our church just to kind of check things out. I think the Spirit of God actually moved her over there. But the day that she visited us, several of us told her about what the Mormon church teaches. And she became very irate with us. She didn't believe any of it. She was very mad. But to her credit, she went and studied things out. And she found that what we were saying is true. And then she left the Mormon church. And you know what happened? When she left the church, the church sent a bill collector after her to get her tithe that she had pledged to the church for that year. When that happened, Mary's anger toward us turned pretty fiercely toward the Mormon church. And praise God, she came out of that, became very well versed in the Bible and came to believe the truth. I learned from that experience that often members of the Mormon church don't have any idea what's going on inside the, the church, really. And so I do believe, it's my own conviction, you're free to, to wrestle with John and see what you think, but I do believe that we are more free to try to evangelize and fellowship with everyday Mormons than we are with those in the church. I could give you many other examples. There's a lot of examples on my mind, but I'm supposed to be preaching on Third John today, so I'm going to leave it at that. Here's the point that I'm trying to make. We are free to befriend people in Christ to try to share Christ with them. In fact, we must do that. We must do that. I pray that every one of you is trying to develop strategic relationships with people in order to let them know about the glory of Jesus Christ. We're not trying to make a sale. We're not just trying to grow a church. We just want people to know the glory and joy of knowing Him who is truly glorious and truly joy-producing. That's it. I pray that all of us are doing that and in more and more and more and more measure. And some of you are really good at that. I commend you. I praise God for you. I pray that God would increase your tribe, as it were, among us, and that this church would become as hot for evangelism as we are for the truth. But when it comes to leadership, even the leadership of this church over here, who's not only teaching, but 
actively promoting a homosexual lifestyle. We just cannot have fellowship with the leadership of churches like that. We cannot. So I need to leave it at that for now. I hope I've made myself more clear. If I've still confused you or confused you all the more, I just want to encourage you, just go to first to Second John. All I'm trying to do is make clear what John is saying. What I think is really not what's important. What's important is what the Word of God says. And so I pray and, and I encourage you just to go to the Word and let God speak to you through that. And of course, I'm always open to the conversation as well. Okay, let's turn our attention now back to Third John. And let me just say that as the, is the case with Second John, this little letter doesn't receive a lot of attention. Never in all my years heard a sermon or a lecture given on this letter. And uh, I, I, as I said last week, I think I can understand the sentiments of people who don't make much of it because it is a little tiny letter. It's, it doesn't have a lot of original material in it. The things John says here, he said elsewhere, and so I can understand in some ways why it doesn't get a lot of attention. But here's the, the problem. It's in the Bible. It's, it's the Word of God. It's inspired. God meant for it to be in our Bible. God breathed the words of Third John into the mind and heart and through the pen of John. He preserved it for 2,000 years now that we might be able to read this little letter. We know that John wrote other letters that we don't have in our possession because of some things that he said in his letters here. We know that. God saw fit to preserve these letters. And so we need to take them seriously. We need to try to understand them and try to apply them through our lives. In fact, I've, I've been so blessed by Third John. I'm going to give two full sermons to this one and then come back and do a third sermon on Second and Third John together. There's just a theme I'm seeing there that I want to take out. So I pray to God that we would uh, benefit much from these two little letters. Third John breaks down into four little sections. First of all is the greeting in the first four verses. Then he talks to his friend Gaius about missions and tries to encourage him. Uh, verses 5 to 8 is a pastoral rebuke, which we will look at next week, and also a pastoral commendation of another person. And then finally, in uh, verses 13 and 15, John draws the letter to a close. So what I want to do is look at verses 1 through 8 today, and then we'll come back and look at the rest of it next week. So let's read verses 1 to 4 again. The elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth... Beloved, I pray that all may go well with you and that you may be in good health as it goes well with your soul. For I rejoice greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth, as indeed you are walking in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Now I plan to come back to these verses in two weeks, so I don't want to say a lot about them now, but what I do want to do is just highlight three of the central characters in Third John. First of all is what is called just here the elder. John doesn't actually name himself. And so the only way we know that, that John actually wrote this letter is because, first of all, the content and the style are identical to other things that John wrote, right? And when you read Third John, doesn't it feel like John to you? Doesn't it sound like John? And scholars feel that. So we feel very confident that John wrote it. And the other thing that's a huge thing is from the very beginning of church history, this letter has been attributed to John. There's only one person in all of church history that said that John didn't write it and he had an agenda that I'll talk to you about some other time. And so nobody, nobody is persuaded by that guy at all. So there's universal agreement, essentially, that John wrote it. It sounds, it feels so much like John. So I accept it as absolute fact that this is the Apostle John writing. Many scholars think that he spent the last years of his life in Ephesus, and so it may well be that he wrote this little letter from the church that we spent two and a half years thinking about here at Glory of Christ. One way or the other, the Apostle John wrote this letter to a guy named Gaius. There are other Gaiuses in the Bible. We are sure that he didn't write to any of them because those Gaiuses had to do with Paul's ministry, and the thing is that the name Gaius in John's day was as popular as the name John is in our day. So you probably know a few guys named John. John, you probably know more guys named John than I do because you probably notice it when you meet them. And in that day, there was Gaiuses everywhere. A lot of people in the Roman world were named Gaius, so we have no idea who John is writing to. But what we do know is that probably John won this guy to Christ and grew him up in Christ. And now Gaius had become a leader in the church, and John was writing to Gaius as uh, an apostle, as an elder, as a pastor probably, to now a fellow pastor whom he had won to Christ. It had to have given John great joy just to acknowledge Gaius as that. In uh, verse 3, I believe it is, another group of people comes up that's, uh, that's important here. It's where John just says the brothers. Is that in verse 3? Yeah, in verse 3. I rejoice greatly when the brothers came to testify to your faith. And so 
these brothers, I think what the situation was, is that Gaius was at a particular church, and these brothers were missionaries of some sort or other who had come to his city and come into his church. He did not know them beforehand, but for whatever reason, he just felt in the Holy Spirit that they were of God, and so he received them, he treated them well. In fact, he partnered in their ministry, and now those brothers had left Gaius's church, and they went over to the Apostle John's church, wherever that was. And now these brothers are at John's church and they're testifying about Gaius and John is so thrilled by it that he writes a letter back to Gaius to say some thanks to him. So the three players we need to have in mind today, we'll bring up two more people next week, but today there is the elder, John the Apostle, there is Gaius, his beloved friend and faithful minister in the Lord, and then there are these brothers who were missionaries, who were going from place to place, had been at Gaius's church, and now we're at John's church. John is writing back to Gaius about a few things. With that in mind, let's look at verse 5 and see what John has to say. Beloved, it's a faithful thing that you do in all your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are, who testify to your love before the truth. You will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God. For they have gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support people like these, that they may be fellow workers for the truth. And so again, as we saw, as I just said a minute ago, the brothers had come into the church. Gaius, for whatever reason, had received them and had done several things for them. I take this from the words, all your efforts that Gaius had done more than just one or two things, but he had really gotten in there and gotten his hands dirty and begun to partner in the ministry it was that God had given to them. And they were strangers to him. Alex, I thought about you a lot this week because that's just the way we got involved in Baraka House. Alex just called us up out of nowhere one day and then ended up visiting us one Sunday a couple of years ago. We spent 30 minutes in the back there talking with her, began the beginnings of a, of a partnership that grew and grew and grew. We've sent teams to India and now this precious woman in Christ is living in our home now for the next few months. Why? Because by the Holy Spirit we embraced a stranger in Christ She was truly from God, and now we have fellowship with her. We have fellowship with Him. We have ministry in in India. This is just what happened in Gaius' church. People who were strangers showed up one day, but they were of God. Gaius sensed it, and so a partnership began. A deep partnership began. And now John writes back, and essentially what he says to Gaius is this, Brother, good job. Good job. You discern the Spirit of God in the ministry of a person of of these brothers. You embraced them in their ministry. You did more than give them lip service, but you actually laid down your life, gave of your resources, and became involved in their ministry to a great extent. Good job. Now do it again. Do it more. Put the pedal to the metal. Be a worker for the truth. What you have done, do more and more and more. I think as I've meditated on this letter, that probably what was happening is these brothers were with John and they're now getting ready to set out on another missionary journey and they needed money, was the bottom line. They refused to accept money from those to whom they preached and so they needed resources for the ministry. And now John writes a fundraising letter back to Gaius and says, Brother, good job. Could you send some more money? I think that's what he's saying. Be a fellow worker for the truth. You did a great thing. Now do it all the more. That is essentially the message to us for today. As I meditated on this letter this week, I had such joy in my heart because as one of your pastors, I feel just like John felt toward Gaius about you. I was mowing the lawn last Thursday and and meditating on this letter and, and it just occurred to me that you are just like Gaius. You have done these things and you've done them well. It was not just me and Kevin who accepted the stranger at that time. You're no longer a stranger to us, Sister Alex. But at that time, you were a stranger to us. But the whole church embraced her. And it was the whole church who has given of yourself. You've given of your resources. You even let me go for an entire month, which is no small thing in a life of a small church like this. That's a big thing. You, you have done so much. You've given so much. And more importantly, you've given of your hearts to the children in the ministry of Baraka House. And I feel so proud of you for that. It's so sincere in you. It's so real. It's so heartfelt. It's so God-focused and God-glorifying. Even the garage sale this week that we raised $811. Thank you for those of you who did that. Praise God for that. I see this in you and I feel what John felt for you. Deep gratefulness and now I just want to say, do it more. 
Put the pedal to the metal. Become a worker for truth. Live simply that others might simply live. You remember our brother Chaco came with us to be with us a few months ago. And he said that to us. He said, in America, the calling on us is to live simply that others might simply live. We don't probably need that bigger house or the boat or the cabin up north or all the stuff. We need to live simply and give as much as we can for the sake of the name all throughout the world. So that's the message today. Good job and do more. Good job and do more. Put the pedal to the metal. So what I want to do now is draw out five principles of missions from these several verses. Things that I hope will guide us in the years to come. And then I want to come back and encourage you to involve yourself in missions in a couple specific ways. So here's five things. Principle one. Although our efforts in missions will be difficult and costly at times, the treasure of joy which we share in Christ far outweighs the pain. The joy in Christ outweighs the pain of missions. And missions is hard. I get this from verse 5. Because I see in John's encouragement to Gaius, I see God's encouragement to Gaius. It was God who inspired John to write those particular words to Gaius. Good job is essentially what he said. And it was God who caused the letter of 3 John to be preserved for the last 3,000 years. You have to realize, this little letter would have just been on a flimsy piece of paper like this, floating around, and it's amazing that that thing survived. I mean, it's copies of copies of copies, of course. But still, it's amazing that a little piece of paper survived for 2,000 years. God did that. God did that. And I think the, one of the reasons God preserved the encouragement to Gaius here is because He wanted all of us to be encouraged. That if we live the kind of life Gaius lived, we're going to receive that kind of reward where the Father brings us into His bosom and says, Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your Master. That's what I hear in John's encouragement here. Not just John's encouragement, but God's encouragement. And so what I'm saying is, listen, the more we get involved in missions, the more we're going to understand it's hard. It's really hard. The people who are idealistic about missions don't know anything about missions. If you really get involved, you're going to understand it is hard. And what I'm saying is the joy in Christ is worth the pain. When we start seeing people come to Christ, when we start seeing people, uh, God exalting His great name in the eyes of the people, when we are embraced by our Father and He says, Well done, good and faithful servant, fellow worker for the truth, enter into your Master's happiness. It will be worth the pain. So I'm going to call you into more pain today is essentially what I'm going to call you into. But that pain is just a path to joy and how I pray to God that we will do it. Principle two. We should first concern ourselves with the quality of our sending and then with the numbers of people that we send. So some churches are all about supporting like a hundred missionaries, but they don't do it very well. And what I'm saying is I think this text teaches us do each missionary really well and then move on to the next one. Put quality over quantity. And I'm not saying quantity doesn't matter, but I am saying quality is more important. I get this from verse 6 where John encourages Gaius to send the brothers in a manner worthy of God. There's a little bit of debate among pastors and scholars about the nuances of what that means, but everybody's agreed that essentially what it means is send them in a way that God would send them. Send them in in the way that you would want to be sent if you were going. Send them in a way that's pleasing to God. Or one person I read this week said it might mean send them as if you were sending God. Send them in a manner worthy of God. Do it really well. You may not be able to do everything you want to do for them. Believe me, Alex, there's a lot more we want to do for you than we can. But we're going to do everything we possibly can. That much I know. We're going to send as well as we can so that we can account to God with as much joy as we can. And I think the principle we have to draw from this as a people is we should do each missionary really well before we add other missionaries. It's an important point. You know my heart. I want to see us. Before I am old and drooling at this pulpit and have to be removed, I'd like to see a hundred people all over the world serving Christ for the sake of the name. That's what I want to see. I've been praying that for five years. Father, allow us to send a hundred singles or families into the world for the sake of the name over the years. That's my prayer. But I'll tell you, I'd rather send fewer and do it well than send a whole lot just for the sake of sending a whole lot. Principle three. 
We should only send those who are focused on exalting the name of Jesus Christ and are not so much focused on developing business or doing social work. I get this from verse 7, which says that they have gone out for the sake of the name. That was their primary motivation. They did not go out for the sake of gain. They did not go out for the sake of reward, of fame, of fortune, or of, of, of anything like that. They did not go out to start businesses. They did not go out to do social services fundamentally. They went out for the sake of the name. Now, there is such a thing as tent-making ministry. That means that a person, there's a very good friend of mine who's in China right now. He went there as a business person, but he's disguised as a business person. He's truly a missionary. He's there to start churches and be a force for the glory of Jesus in China. But the thing about him is, he's really actually focused on getting that job done. He's doing his business, yes, but he's actually getting that job done in whatever measure. I heard of a person last year who went to a country to start up a business to do this kind of missions thing here, which is not a bad idea, but the problem was in five years' time he had not shared the gospel with one single person. He said that the opportunity had never approached it. It had never presented itself to him. And I just don't believe that. I don't believe it. We've gone out for the sake of the name, and if we have to suffer, let us suffer. So we don't go out to start a business. If you want to live in another part of the world, do it, but don't call it missions. If you want to go out to start a business, do it, but don't call it missions, unless your primary motivation is the exaltation of the name of Jesus Christ. Some people have gone out into the world to start things like orphanages just for the sake of starting orphanages. The one thing about Mother Teresa that really gave me pause and really grieved my heart is when I heard her say that she was there to love the poor, but she didn't care so much about sharing Christ. She said, I'm not here to make Hindus into Christians. I want to make Hindus better Hindus. Well, that's a real problem for me. We go out for the sake of the name. And Alex, one of the reasons we're involved with you and so excited about what's happening in India is because of the disciple-making that we see there. You know, she could have a thousand children in the orphanage just like that. I hope you know that. There are kids all over India and families eager to give kids up to food and and the learning of English. It, it, It would be easy to have a humongous ministry. Easy. And impress Americans with numbers. But what she has decided to do is disciple the kids. And if she can disciple more, amen, let's disciple more. But we're going to disciple those we have. And it's working. When I was there in India, I was so impressed. I spent every day teaching the older kids. And I asked all of them, what do you think God is doing with your life? To a person, all of them wanted to involve themselves in ministry. Some missionary work, some pastoral work. Some wanted to work at Baraka House. But all wanted to lay down, down their lives for the sake of the glory of God in the world. Praise God. Praise God. So should we go and help the poor? Absolutely we should. But in the midst of doing that, our main aim has to be the exaltation of the name of Jesus Christ. And so what we have said as elders is that we want to focus our missions money on ministries that are impacting churches and church planting and are reaching uh, unreached people groups. That's really where we want to focus. People who are focused on developing churches and who are reaching unreached peoples. That doesn't mean they're directly planting churches necessarily, but it means that what they're doing impacts the planting of churches. What's the point? The point is that we want to focus on the exaltation of the name of Jesus. And believe me, a lot of things happen in the name of missions that are not, biblically speaking, missions. And so, again, if you want to move to another part of the world and start a business, do it. But don't call it missions unless you're focused on the exaltation of the name of Jesus Christ. We must do that. Principle four. We should train our missionaries not to expect or solicit gifts from those to whom they preach. I get this also from verse seven, where John points out that these brothers would not accept anything from the Gentiles. Now you have to understand in that day, There were preachers who would go all over that part of the world and would proclaim their God, whatever their God was, and then they would take up offerings for their gods. But those offerings would end up in the hands of those who took the offering. I read an account this this week of a person who appeared as a poor peasant and went from his home in the Middle East to Egypt to preach about his God and take up offerings. And he bragged that when he got home, he came back with no less than 80 bags of gold. So he had preached, no doubt, and he had won some people who were persuaded enough to give their gold, no doubt, but he was a crook. He was there to make money. He was not there for anything true. So 
Paul and other preachers in this day decided when we go out, we're not going to take anybody, any money from anybody because we want people to understand that the message is sincere. We're not here to personally profit. Our God is not here to get your money. The gospel is free of charge. It will cost you everything, but it's free of charge. And so the very reason John needed to raise money to send these missionaries is so that they could offer the gospel free of charge. They have to eat somehow, right? They had to clothe themselves somehow. They had to be able to sleep somewhere somehow. And so the way that they would do it is the church would support them so that the brothers could go out for the sake of the name and not take any money. We need to do the same kind of thing in our day. The situation in our world is a little bit different, but I think the principle remains the same. The reason we raise money for missions is so that we can send missionaries who can offer the gospel free of charge, who don't muddy the message by taking money in order for preaching or bringing the name of Jesus Christ to a particular people. Finally, one more thing. Principle number five. When everything works the way it's supposed to, both the goers and the senders become fellow workers for the truth. This I get, obviously, from verse 8 where John uses that exact language. There's only a handful of us in this church, really in the kingdom of God at large, that are going to be called to lay down everything in our lives and, and move to another part of the world. To give up everything American and to take on the flesh of another people and share Christ with those people on their terms. Only a handful of us will do that. The rest of us are called not so much to lay down American life here, but here we're called to die to ourselves, to die to the American dream, to live to the kingdom of God dream, and do everything we can to partner with those who have been faithful to go. In this way, both goers and senders are partners and fellow workers for the truth. When you work as a sender and work at it really well, you are just as much of a a partner in the mission as the missionary who goes. You are. You are a fellow worker for the truth. And I think that John wanted Gaius to have this particular language in his brain. I think he wanted him to have this particular knowledge and all of us as well so that when we're here working hard and making sacrifices, sending money, sending prayers, sending whatever kind of support that we can, that we would feel that we're not just doing a good deed, but we're actually partners in missions. You might as well be the one that got on the plane and flew to that other place because you are in God's mind absolutely a fellow worker for the truth. So here are the five principles quickly. Number one, the joy is worth the pain. Missions is painful. The joy is worth it. Number two, quality before quantity. We should send in a manner worthy of God before we send another in a manner worthy of God. Number three, the exaltation of the name of Jesus Christ must be primary. Number four, we must go to share and serve and not to gain. And number five, goers and senders alike are partners in the great work of the gospel and how I pray that every single one of us who is in Christ would be an obedient goer or an obedient sender. John Piper loves to say, you are either a goer, a sender, or you're in sin. Those are the only three choices. In the kingdom of God, there are only three categories. Goers, senders, those who are rebelling against the command of God. So you are not doing that. You are good senders. And I just want to encourage you. I want to put fuel on the fire to say, be even better. Be the best partners for the truth that you can possibly be at this church. Sacrifice everything you can so that you can be a fellow worker for the truth to the greatest extent that you can. Like John did with Gaius, I believe the Lord wants to fan into flame our passion for missions here at this church this morning. I think He just wants to encourage us with the sort of more and more language of 1 Thessalonians. Now, quickly, I've said a few things about Baraka House. We've tried to be as good a partners there as we can be, and we will be partners in India for many, many years to come. I think... Uh, I don't see an end to it. There's so much opportunity there. I have such passion for that ministry there, and so do you. So uh, this is not a short-term thing. We will be involved in Northeast India for a very long time to come. In addition to that, two other opportunities have presented themselves that I want to let you know about. I'm not here to announce that we're getting involved in anywhere particularly this morning, but I want to put a couple things on your radar and I want to call you to prayer because I feel as a pastor like God is inviting us to do things that we cannot do. 
I feel like God is saying, come and step out on the water and let me show you what I can do. Don't do missions by what you can do. Do missions by what I can do. So let me let you know about two situations. First of all is our precious Sarah Fergus. Let me read you a letter from African Inland Missions, or AIM for short, that I received a couple of weeks ago about Sarah Fergus. Sarah, are you here? I don't see you. She's back there. Later today when the service is over, she'll be back there. You can talk to her more. But please know that this is, this is about her, and this really blessed my heart. Dear Pastor Charlie, we want to let you know that we are pleased to appoint Sarah Fergus as a full-term missionary with African Inland Mission. It's such a joy to, to read that, Sarah. I prayed for you for the last several years. I knew that God had His hand on you for this. And it just blesses me to read that sentence out loud. What a blessing. We are grateful to the Lord for His faithfulness in placing His hand upon Sarah and leading her to serve in Africa, in Tanzania to be specific. She's going to northeast Tanzania. Your influence as a pastor and as a people has no doubt had deep effect on Sarah. This relationship will continue even after she enters into ministry in Africa. Missionaries need pastoral ministry and church-wide ministry more often than is realized and even an occasional personal letter from, from their pastor or others in the church can be a great source of needed encouragement. It is our feeling that it is the local church which sends a missionary and not the agency. Amen to that. Each of us, however, has the responsibility to help and encourage Sarah in these months prior to her departure. So she's been appointed. It's a done deal. She went through the whole program. They gave her the thumbs up. She's been appointed to go fall of 2011, right, Sarah? Spring of 2012. Good, that gives you a little bit more time to raise the money. She's going to northeast Tanzania. She's going to need about $2,200 a month of monthly support. And I don't know what God would call us to do, but I pray in the Holy Spirit that He would cause us to be a partner in the truth with this young lady and that we would send her in a manner worthy of God. I'm asking God to bring a flood of resources that we might have enough to, to stay being good partners with Baraka House and also get involved in northeast Tanzania. I just have a gut instinct that God is going to do something great. And so this morning, all I want to do is call you to prayer about this. Another time when Sarah knows more about the team that's still forming at this time, we'll have an informational meeting. We'll call you together. Let her give you all the details about what she's up to. But for right now, I just want to call you to prayer. And as if that was not enough, there's another couple that is not a part of our church. They visited here recently, so you may recognize them. But their dad's a a good friend of mine. He's an amazing man. He's the chairman of the Amen Corner. He's uh, Ben Anderson. Could you just raise your hand, Ben, so people can see you? One of Ben's sons, Amos, and his wife, Meredith, and their little son, Isaiah, they just had another baby. Yes? Soon to have another baby. They have been appointed with World Venture to go to Albania. There's a picture of them there. I'll put their picture back on, on the back table there after the service. But they have already been appointed and released to go to Albania. Kevin and I separately met with Ben, and we're very, very impressed with this young man. He is absolutely filled with the Holy Spirit, with the character of Christ. He is passionate about church planting. What he's going there to do is to plant another church off of a church plant in Albania among Muslim people. And so they have a church that was planted there a number of years ago. It's up to like 200 or something like that. And now they want to splinter off and go to another city and plant another church for Muslims. And Ben would be the pastor of that church. That's the vision. And we're very excited about that. I I see the Spirit of God blowing in his life. Let me give you just one example. When they realized they really wanted to give their lives to missions. They had two places that they could have gone. And so they were going to take an exploratory trip and go to both places and see what God might do. And they knew that they were going to have to sell their house. So they had kind of already made the decision. Yeah, I think let's sell our house. So we'll go, we'll go on this exploratory mission. And when we get back, we'll put it on the market. They hadn't told anybody. They hadn't contacted a realtor, hadn't put anything in the paper, nothing like that. And one day on the door, they get a knock on the door. And this woman says to them, would you like to sell your house? Because I would like to buy it. And they said, well, funny that you ask. We were just talking about selling our house. But we've got to go on this journey. It's going to take us three weeks or a month. Can you wait until we get back? The woman said, I'll try to wait, but I need a house. So if I find another house, I'm going to have to buy another house. Well, 
as circumstances would have it, they couldn't go to the place in Africa that they were going to go for some health reasons. So they only went to Albania. And when they went to Albania, God made it very clear that that was the place for them to go. And so they come back home. They get a hold of this lady. They say, you still want to buy the house? And she said, yeah, I want to buy the house. Three weeks later, escrow closes. The deal's done. That doesn't happen in an economy like this. In fact, I'm not sure I've ever heard ever of a story of someone walking up, having the boldness to knock on the door and say, I want to buy your house. Are you interested in moving? And so I, things like that don't happen unless the Holy Spirit is moving. And just as that happened, another rich guy in their church offered to give them a house to live in until they were able to raise all of the money for their support and go to Albania. And so they're living free of charge in a very nice house because God is providing for them. We see the Spirit of God upon this man. And again, uh, we've never just put things on you. I'm just calling you to prayer. And when the time is right, we'll have Ben come up here. We'll have a, a thing and let him tell you about his ministry. And I pray to God again. I am praying that God would bring a flood of resources. I will tell you, in my flesh, I see no way that we can support either Sarah or Ben. I don't see a way. But I believe in Jesus. I believe in a Jesus who actually called Peter to walk on the water and it actually happened. I believe in a Jesus who actually healed diseases. I believe in a Jesus who said, oh, you need tax money? Go catch a fish and look in his mouth. There will be your tax money. I believe in a God who can move mountains and can do things we cannot imagine to do. So I want you to think about the God who created a universe like this and pray to Him that He would help us to be fellow workers for the truth in India, Tanzania, Albania, wherever in the world He would have us do that. Please, please get on your knees and call down the resources of heaven with me. Let's do that now. Father, I love You so much for including us in Your mission. You didn't need to do it that way. You are God. You have all the power in the universe available to you. You could have grown the church on your own without help from anyone, but you are a loving Father who loves to include His children in His work, and so you have essentially invited us into the family business. And the family business gets done the way that you do it, not the way that we do it. The family business is about the exercise of your power, not about the exercise of our ingenuity. Lord, we love Alex so much. We love the children and the ministry of Baraka House so much. It has been our privilege for over two years to be involved in that ministry. And Father, we will not let our foot off the gas. We will continue to push harder and harder and be the best partners we can possibly be for as long as we can possibly be. And now, Father, I thank You for Sarah Fergus, who You've been growing up both elsewhere and among us for the last several years and putting the call to missions on her heart. And now it's been made official, Father, and she's received the appointment letter. And now it's simply time for resources to come. Everything else is in place, but resources need to come. Oh God, I pray in Jesus' name, for the sake of Your glory, that You would allow us to be a partner in the truth with her, to support her well, that she could go out for Your sake and take nothing from the Gentiles. God, do a miracle in our eyes, I pray for the glory of Your name. And I pray the same thing for Ben and Meredith Anderson, God. I thank You so much or for Amos and Meredith Anderson. Father, I thank You so much for Ben who put so many years into this young man who taught him to walk in the way that he should go so that now Amos loves You so much he would lay down everything to proclaim the name of Jesus Christ among Muslim peoples. I praise You for that. And I pray that You'd bring Your plans to fruition now for Amos's life. And I pray that You'd provide all of their needs. They have 40% in. They need another 60%, Father. I pray that in Your time and way, You would provide it all. I pray that You'd make a way for glory of Christ to be partners there. And I pray that along the way, You would build all of our faith. Oh, Father, please show us Your powerful, strong hand move in these situations for the glory of Your name. God, I thank You for these things. And I trust You for these things. And I dedicate myself to you to live as simply as I can, to be the best fellow worker for the truth that I can. And I ask you to move all of your people in that same direction now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.